Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, June 5th, Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. The past few chapters of Acts have relayed distinct but eerily similar interactions between Paul and the governing authorities as the apostle attempts to defend himself against the unfounded accusations of the Jews. As I read through these pages, I marvel at many things about Paul's recorded words. I am amazed by his poise. When one considers the horrific things that are being said about Paul and what is at stake, namely his very life, it is amazing that Paul could collect his thoughts and respond in an orderly fashion at all. I admire Paul's clarity. The story never changes with the apostle. He is consistent in his faithful witness to Christ. Every person who heard Paul's testimony was given a message that they could understand. His testimony was Christ-exalting, and his countenance affirmed the hope that he claimed to possess. In these things, we see something of the supernatural nature of the presence of the Spirit, and I don't want to go through this week's devotion without pointing out the real source of Paul's steadfastness. Our passage for today records Jesus' words that are remarkably applicable to Paul's circumstance. Jesus knew that the world would persecute Christians. He knew that men like Paul would be drugged before kangaroo courts and forcefully goaded to provide the reason for their actions. We see in Acts 26 the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy, and the most obvious proof is in Paul's testimony. Folks, what I am driving at today is that Paul was so consistent and clear and convicted because he was filled with the Spirit. When we read the testimony of the apostle, we need to see past the natural intellect and ability of the man to the God who indwells and leads the man. Paul's secret weapon was the Spirit of God who was prompting and guiding him all along the way. We talk often about our personal responsibility in the Christian faith, and this devotion is not meant to diminish the clear commands and obligations that Christians are given to press into our relationship with Christ through the means of grace. Nevertheless, there is a supernatural bond and unction that comes only through the Spirit. There are times in each of our lives where we simply do not have the natural ability we need to do to what God accomplished. Point to Ponder, June 6th, John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. I sometimes wonder what men of God are thinking in their most difficult encounters. Sunday's passage describes a scene that must have been intense. After all, the apostle is standing before a man who could move to take his very life away. The circumstance begs some obvious questions. Specifically, we should all wonder what could sustain a person in these moments. Church family, we sometimes would be wise not to get too caught up in chronological snobbery. This is the idea that what has happened lately is, by virtue of its recency, the most important or dire or great thing in history. Sometimes stories like the one in Acts 26 remind us that things have been far worse for believers than they are for us in 21st century America. However, there is another danger lurking, and that is the danger of underestimating the depths that we may have experienced in the near future. To my knowledge, no one is being executed by the governing authorities in America for their faith, but that doesn't mean that we won't be facing intense persecution shortly. The point, then, is that we would be wise to lean into this text and not just observe Paul, but intently search for the means that assisted him in getting through a situation that may confront us one day in the not-so-distant future. So, what sustained Paul? One answer would certainly be the promises of God. As Paul confronts the reality that his life could be taken from him, he did so in the faith that God had guaranteed eternity and glory. 
Jesus made clear in our passage for today that no one would snatch his people from his hand, that no one included Agrippa, the Pharisees, and Caesar. Paul did not know what his temporal life would be extended, but he did have promises that his eternal state could not be touched. This truth was undoubtedly on his mind as he stood to speak with courage. The same God that miraculously converted Paul, overcame dire circumstances in his ministry, and sustained him in his service had guaranteed that Paul's ultimate destination was secure. This provides marvelous hope and peace. Paul's eternity was not on the line. His life was ultimately not at stake. Death had been transformed from a great and final enemy to a doorway into heavenly bliss, and these things were sure based on what God had promised. It seems obvious to me that many Christians deal with anxiety and hardships because their perspective is so skewed. The height of faith is not to deny problems. The height of faith is to see the God who transcends and overcomes our problems. We go through objectively evil and difficult trials with our heads in the Bible, not in the sand. We should not refuse to acknowledge our enemies, but we should only see our enemies as subsidiary to our great friend. Jesus is the friend and redeemer of sinners and His Word and power overwhelms any temporal obstacle or force we may encounter. Point to Ponder, June 7th, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. I pray I did an adequate job on Sunday of connecting Paul's hope, as referenced in chapter 26, with the Old Testament text that founded his belief. Paul did not hope in the way that we hope that it rains or that our team wins. His hope was a biblically assured expectation of Christ's current and future rule and reign over his people, and all that such a rule and reign would entail. Paul's hope was grounded in the most enduring truths in the universe, and this gave him an anchor for his soul that held him even in life's most difficult moments. What I'd like to do over the next five days is take several Old Testament passages and show you how Paul, a Pharisee in his previous years and therefore a student of Scripture prior to his conversion, had ample evidence to validate his hope. When the apostle stood before Agrippa, he did so with confidence because of his hope in Christ. Specifically, Paul knew the Old Testament teaching that his King Jesus was eternal. This meant that Jesus' rule and reign and his promises and character were enduring. There would be a time in the not-so-distant future when Agrippa would cease to rule, but there would never be a time in which Jesus was kicked off of his throne. Paul's calculus becomes clear as we enter these truths into evidence. The decision that was made was simply allegiance to the conquering, enduring king over submission to the momentary defeated worldly authorities. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is the eternal king, and we see this in our text today. Notice how Isaiah connects Jesus' rightful authority with his eternality. Jesus would carry the government on his shoulders. Literally, he is the foundation and sustainer of God's eternal governance of his people. Whether anyone else in the room recognized or acknowledged the fact of Jesus' authority was inconsequential to Paul's hope. Paul knew that Jesus would always be on his throne, and therefore he had reason to hope in the middle of the trial. Second, notice that Isaiah tells us that Jesus would carry the government forever. In the names that Isaiah ascribes to Christ, we read that Jesus will be called, quote, everlasting father. The term is clear without much explanation, as this is an obvious reference to the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus is everlasting. There was never a time that Christ didn't exist, and there will never be a time in which he ceases to exist. Even death could not end our king. Instead, Jesus will always live. Connecting these truths helps us understand one source of Paul's hope. Since he knew the king and since the king would always be king, Paul recognized that the relationship he enjoyed, which was guaranteed to last forever by the king, would trump any momentary problems he may encounter. 
His relationship with the governing authorities was always strained and often contentious, but his relationship with the true ruler of the universe was fixed. Point to Ponder, June 8th, Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Yesterday we saw the prophecies that helped Paul comprehend the enduring nature of Christ's rule, and today we will see the truth that the Bible guarantees Christ's victory over all competing nations and rulers. Before we dive into the meat of our devotion, I need to say a few words about an interesting theological debate that is often brought to the surface in verse 7. The Bible says that God said to me, that's Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Some would claim that this contradicts what we said yesterday, namely that Jesus is eternal. Was there a time in which Jesus didn't exist? No. The idea is not that Christ was made. The idea is that sometime in eternity past, the Father and Son entered into a covenant of redemption whereby, on that proverbial day, the Son covenanted with the Father to die to redeem a people that he would rule and work within to prevail over his enemies. So, the today is not in reference to Jesus' supposed creation, but in reference to the moment in which this agreement was made. Now, Paul's hope was grounded in the promises of the Father to the Son that the nations will be Christ's inheritance. As such, Christ would prevail over the rulers and authorities that were his enemies, dashing them into pieces and breaking them with a rod of iron. In both statements, the reader is confronted with the truth that the nations will oppose Christ. In fact, the first few verses of the psalm tell us as much when we read that the nations rage against Christ and plot against him in vain. Now, Paul is in the company of some of the ruling elite who hate Jesus and, because he knows the word, he is neither surprised nor shaken. Paul knew there would be a conflict, but he also knew that God had promised his son victory. Paul was serving the one who would prevail, and this gave him great confidence in the midst of the battle. We still live within and amongst nations that are raging against Christ. Today's public square is full of men and women who are not only indifferent to King Jesus, but they hate him and everything he has said about his authority in their lives. They rage and plot to take him and his church out of the picture, but we know that their plotting is in vain. Jesus continues to reign, the promises of God are still true, and they are enduring. God not only anticipated, but boldly proclaimed that this would be the dynamic. There is nothing new under the sun, and there is no new enemy that can surprise our sovereign Lord. The next time you turn on the news or see the depravity of the world in your private interactions or encounter someone or some institution that hates Christ and Christians, be encouraged. None of this takes the Lord by surprise, and none of it is going to be effective in knocking our King off His guaranteed and well-deserved throne. Point to Ponder, June 9th, Daniel chapter 7, and verse 14. Some commentators have speculated that the apocalyptic language and teaching in Daniel might be more complicated and difficult to understand than Revelation. The book has some historic narrative within its pages, but much of what Daniel teaches has been hotly debated for centuries. There is room for disagreement on some of these topics, but I want to pause before we dive into our verse for the day with a simple admonition. As you read the scripture, there is a place for study and diving deeply into difficult passages, but please don't miss the larger truth that is almost always clear. In this case, Daniel is speaking about the, quote, Son of Man and his ultimate triumph. The passage is meant to draw our attention to the glorious victory of Jesus over all the world. If your study of Daniel ends with a firm conviction that you know what the 70 weeks represent and entail, but you haven't considered the glory of Christ, you've studied the book incorrectly. So today, let's focus on the most important thing, which is the prophecy about the coming king and kingdom.
Verse 14 shows us that Jesus' reign is universal in scope. Indeed, quote, all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, according to Daniel. This was groundbreaking truth to many Jewish readers before Christ. The scope of God's redemptive work was always intended to be global, but it had not yet progressed outside of Israel at that moment. The fact that God's plan of redemption and authority would progress to the far extremities of civilization was not something that would be easily perceived or even accepted in that time. Furthermore, we see that Christ's rule would be, quote, everlasting. Again, we have this notion of an enduring and eternal king and kingdom. This was marvelously reassuring in its immediate context. So much of what had assailed Israel was bound up in the transient, sinful nature of their kings. Even their best kings died, and when they passed, the transition almost never ended well. There was little security in their kingdom because there was no guarantee that the ruler on the throne at that moment would be on the throne even next month. Conversely, when Jesus appeared, he would commence a rule that would never be thwarted or interrupted. Finally, we see that his kingdom would not be destroyed. No longer would there be a threat from the Philistines, Babylonians, or Romans. All of the enemies of the Lord would be subdued once and for all by Christ, and this meant that the tranquility of peace was all that would be left to enjoy in God's eternal kingdom. Paul looked forward to this day. He knew that its full appearing had not yet occurred, but he further knew that it was sure. He could endure the difficult persecution and hope that a future reward was sweet and enduring, and we can too. When was the last time you thought about the future? Have you reflected on Jesus and his coming lately? Are you sure that you know him? If so, there is no reason to panic. Anytime we find ourselves drifting into anxiety or uneasiness, we need to remind ourselves of the truth, just as Paul did when he was filled with hope in a courtroom that was full of very powerful enemies of the cross. Point to Ponder, June 10th, Psalm 103, verse 12. All this talk about an enduring and holy king and kingdom are wonderfully glorious, but they do render an obvious problem. The issue is that none of us, Paul included, deserve entry into such a kingdom. How would we commend ourselves to the king that we have offended? The sin problem is not just, quote, out there. The enemies of God are not just the rulers and those in authority who have transgressed his law. All men are guilty of cosmic treason. Paul was aware of this. In fact, he famously described himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 as, quote, the chief of sinners. How could the self-described chief of sinners stand in Christ's holy nation? Paul knew the Old Testament and the gospel enough to know that God had a plan for that as well. Paul's story of conversion is one of forgiveness and restoration, and it was grounded in the consistent truth of the Old Testament. Today's verse has been popularized by famous songs and pithy sayings, and for good reason. The promise in our passage for today is glorious and liberating. We serve a God who doesn't just overlook our sin, He casts our sin away. He deals with it intently and finally, separating us entirely from its presence and condemning power. The language here is a bit flowery, but it communicates an important reality, namely that God separates us entirely from our sin. The East and the West are diametrically opposed directions. As temporal, finite beings, we cannot be in both locations at the same time. We must choose, and our choice necessarily separates us from things and people who go the opposite direction. The point, then, is that God has a plan to divide us and our sin totally. He has taken what was once a part of our very being and standing before Him and done away with it totally. He has atoned for our guilt and given us a new righteousness that will last forever. 
The guilt of our sin will go in one direction, and in the other direction our being and presence in the kingdom will be cemented. Paul knew that his only hope was that this was true. He realized that he had no right and no ability to stand before King Jesus with only his person. He realized that his security was not grounded in intrinsic righteousness, but in a foreign holiness that was given to him by another. He further knew that he had been forgiven, and this forgiveness was the reason he had confidence in his eternal destiny. Paul's sin had been cast from him. He was holy and innocent in God's sight, and this declaration of the Lord was far more valuable and internally important to him than any temporal condemnation he may wrongly suffer at the behest of the Roman authorities. When the God of the universe declares you innocent, whose condemnation still matters? Point to ponder June 11th, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. Yesterday's devotion recorded a glorious truth, but it doesn't entirely answer our question. God's righteousness would demand that somebody pay for our sin. He has clearly told us that sin deserves his condemnation, and we know, based on his righteous character, that he cannot simply go back upon what he has dictated. How, then, can God remove our sin from us and keep his word, and therefore continue in his righteous way? The answer is that Jesus came to atone for us. Paul knew the gospel well. He had encountered the resurrected king, but even before he came to recognize the identity of Christ, he was undoubtedly familiar with the prophecies about Jesus. None of those predictions are more famous and touching than the servant songs of Isaiah. These famous and marvelous prophecies about Christ are some of the most touching and vibrant prophecies in all of Scripture. They teach us so much about the reasons for the crucifixion of Christ, and we see in them the answer to our dilemma. Our text for today tells us that Jesus stood in our place. He was wounded as a consequence for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquity, and by his standing in our place we are healed. The point, then, is that Jesus came to absorb the righteous consequence for our sin. God doesn't look the other way at our faults. He doesn't just decide to violate his holy precepts. He must honor his divine word and the character that requires his judgment. God could only be just if he punished sin, and he is seen as immensely merciful when we consider that he decided to punish our wrongdoing through a holy, divine substitute. The cross of Christ is not simply a demonstration of selfless love. It is the place whereby God unleashes his right wrath on our transgressions. Jesus suffered so that we didn't have to, and he suffered so that God could punish our sin and offer us forgiveness. You and I get into heaven because our sins are covered by another. We are spared eternal torment because someone else suffered in our place. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and Paul knew as much. This meant that he was guaranteed by virtue of his faith in the sufficiency of Jesus' work an eternity with the Lord. He knew that he had been forgiven by God and reconciled to him. Furthermore, Paul was now even an adopted son of the king, and this meant that no condemnation from the authorities could touch his standing forevermore. He realized he didn't deserve God's love, but he also knew he had received it, and this meant that his hope was sure and fixed. The Romans could not hold Jesus in the grave, and the authorities could not prevent Paul from his eternal standing in God's kingdom. This gospel truth is available to all. As we gather to worship the King today, may we remember that we exalt one who loves us so much that he died in our place. May we worship in light of the mercy he has shown and the righteousness he has given us, a righteousness we didn't earn nor deserve, but a righteousness that is freely given nonetheless.